I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 3. This morning we're going to consider the second of three oracles that Micah prophesies against the people of Israel and foretells God's future judgment if they persist in their disobedience. Before we examine God's Word in Micah chapter 3 and the chapters following, let's pray together. Father, as we come to Your Word, we acknowledge that this is Your Word. It carries power and authority in it because it is Your Word. Help us to submit ourselves to it this morning. Would You open our eyes that we might see you satisfy us with your word we pray this in jesus name amen micah chapter 3 is where you're turned to before we begin reading i want you to imagine an older city with a rich religious history and a sterling reputation but it's become a city known for corruption and pagan beliefs and practices There are many cities like this. One such city that Amber and I had the opportunity to visit recently was Glasgow, Scotland. Glasgow is an amazing city known for sports, for shipbuilding, for art, culture. It has a rich religious history. As evidenced by the city's motto. Here is the motto of the city of Glasgow. Or here was the motto of Glasgow. Lord... Let Glasgow flourish through the preaching of Thy Word and praising Thy name. That's pretty amazing. What an amazing reputation that that city had. However, over the last hundred years, Glasgow has strayed from that motto. They've even shortened the motto. If you Google Glasgow's motto now, you'll read these words. Let Glasgow flourish. Government corruption, the decline of the city's industrial might has led Glasgow to the infamous reputation of of sometimes competing for the knife crime capital of Europe. However, they've been recognized as well as one of the UK's friendliest cities. This has led one Scot to joke that Glasgow is the kind of place where they might stab you and then take you to the hospital afterwards. Will Glasgow ever regain its reputation of dedication to God and His Word? Scottish pastors and missionaries like Dale and Avril Freeze are working to spiritually awaken the people, but the progress is slow. There's doubt as to whether Glasgow will ever regain that reputation. Whether they will ever walk back that that truncation of let Glasgow flourish to Lord, let Glasgow flourish through the preaching of Thy Word and praising Thy name. While it's possible Glasgow will one day live up to its original motto, there's no guarantee. Not so with the city in our text this morning. Jerusalem, like Glasgow, has taken a hit on its reputation through wicked and corrupt political and religious leaders. However, Jerusalem is the city of God. It is the place where the temple of God is located. 
In spite of all the wickedness and corruption, God will see to it that Jerusalem's reputation is restored and even magnified in the eyes of the surrounding nations. It's helpful for us to remember the historical context that Micah is set in. As we saw last time in in looking at chapter 1, verse 1, Micah's job as a prophet is to speak on behalf of God to his people. The people of Israel are divided at this time in Israel's history. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah and Samaria is the capital of Israel. Micah, like his contemporaries Isaiah and Hosea, warn God's people to turn from their idolatry and evil and follow God in their ways. So at the time that, that Micah speaks what we have in Micah chapters 3-5, through five, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken into exile. They've already been captured. Samaria has been torn down. And now Assyria has Judah in their crosshairs. What's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem? Is, is Jerusalem and, Judea, or, and Judah going to fare any better than Israel and Samaria? Well, you'll notice in our text this morning that Micah is going to refer to Israel. And remember that Micah, as prophesying to the people of Judah, view Judah as the true people of Israel. They are true Israel, not the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel pulled away and started their own thing. They established Samaria as the center for their idolatrous worship. So Micah here in speaking to Israel is is speaking to Judah, true Israel, those who are left in Judah. Because this passage is God's Word, it is going to be helpful for us this morning. It will be profitable for us today. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let this text point you to Christ. Unsaved friend, maybe you came here wondering if church was for you. Or if going to church this morning was really a good idea. Maybe you had questions as you were driving here. Should I, do I really need to go this morning? Maybe I should just stay home and grab some extra sleep. Friend, I want to assure you that this is where God wants you today. The passage of the Bible that we're going to look at this morning will show you the hope and deliverance that you so desperately need. So I invite you to follow along, to pay close attention to Micah chapters 3, 4, and 5 this morning because you're not only going to see judgment, but you're going to see hope and deliverance. And we need that this morning. As we consider these chapters, God's message through Micah to the prophet of Judah and to us this morning is this. The sinfulness of humanity isn't able to thwart God's sovereign plans. The sinfulness of humanity isn't able to thwart God's sovereign plans. That's going to be the overarching idea as we look at these three chapters this morning in Micah 3, 4, and 5. The sinfulness of humanity isn't able to thwart God's sovereign plans. So let's look first how the Lord... The Lord's house shall be established. The Lord's house shall be established, first of all, in spite of corrupt leaders. The Lord's house shall be established in spite of corrupt leaders. All of chapter 3 details the corruption of the leaders in Israel. So follow along as I read Micah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. 
And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will even hide His face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make My people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against Him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, you shall have night without vision and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. As we consider this text... There are three judgment pronouncements against Judah and its corrupt leaders. The theme of justice ties these three together. Look in verse 1 and you'll see that God asks the leaders, the rulers, a question. Is it not for you to know justice? The answer is, uh, yeah, you're a ruler. Look down in verse 8. In contrast to the false prophets who are, who are speaking off the top of their head, who are consulting everything but God, Micah says this, Truly I am full of power by the Spirit of God and of justice and might. Look at verse 9. You heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice or hate justice or will do anything you can to get away from justice. So justice is, is a theme that God is indicting the leaders of Israel for in chapter 3. And He does this in three judgment oracles. The first one is in verses 1-4. through four. Each of these three oracles that we're going to see in chapter 3 have an indictment and they have a sentence, a pronouncement of woe on the leaders that God is indicting. So in verses 1-4, through four, the indictment is this. The rulers ought to know justice. But instead, they're characterized by their injustice. They hate good and love evil. That's totally flipping everything on its head, isn't it? These rulers don't have an ounce of righteousness or justice in their DNA. They are so cold-hearted and calloused that it is as if they are cannibalizing the people of God. And that's behind that shocking language that we see in verses 2 and 3. God describes these rulers as stripping the skin from My people and the flesh from their bones. 
eating the flesh of My people, flaying their skin from them, breaking their bones, chopping them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. As Micah is speaking these things to the people of Israel, there would be audible gasps. This message is intended to shock these leaders. Do you realize what you're doing? This is how God views what you are taking so lightly and flippantly. They are harming the very people that they're supposed to be serving. So what is their sentence? Verse 4 gives us the sentence. Then, so that's to establish the cause and effect. Then, God is angered by their corruption and He will not answer the leaders when they cry out to Him. Matter of fact, he says that he will hide his face. In other words, he'll withdraw his presence. He will not be near to them. The rulers take God's presence for granted, and so they don't abide by his commands. So that's the first indictment, the indictment on the political leaders. The second indictment in verses 5 through 8 are an indictment on the religious leaders. Verse 5, we see the indictment. God briefly, though thoroughly, excoriates the prophets. He says they lead His people astray. Wait a minute. The prophets are the people who are supposed to be pointing the people to God. Instead, they're leading them astray. They're hypocritical. They chant peace while they chew with their teeth. They prepare war against Him who puts nothing into their mouths. They're greedy. They're greedy for money and food. The ones who are to lead God's people in worshiping Him are instead abusing their power and causing chaos among the people. So God gives us their sentence in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, again, cause and effect. Therefore, you shall have night without vision. You shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall cover, they shall all cover their lips. There's no answer from God. The things that they need to do their job, revelation through dreams and visions, will be taken away from them. They're going to literally be in the dark. They're going to be socially embarrassed, verse 7 says. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to be abashed. They're going to cover their lips. Because there is no answer from God. But in verse 8, there's a stark contrast between those prophets and Micah, God's true prophet. Micah, in verse 8, asserts his legitimate prophetic authority. He is promoting what ought to be promoted. The very things that these other supposed prophets have neglected. He speaks judgment and woe on the people for their sins. He speaks the words of God. The third oracle is in verses 9-12. through And this is an indictment on all of Judah's leaders. So this is not just a political problem. This is not just a religious problem. This is a systemic, like all throughout the system and leadership structures in Judah problem. Verses 9-11 through contain the indictment against these leaders. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And then notice these descriptions. They are ones who abhor justice 
and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. These these places of God, they are corrupting and perverting and distorting. Look at the indictment that God lays out in verse 11 on these leaders. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Do Do you see the theme of greed in the indictment of these three groups of leaders. And notice that it's not just the rulers and the prophets. There's a third category. The priests are included. So what is their sentence in verse 12? Therefore, again, cause and effect, there's going to be punishment. God lays out the consequences again in a three-part way that builds and highlights the totality of the coming destruction. Look at what he says in verse 12. Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. In his prophecy, he starts out broad and gets super specific. So in Zion, Zion we, would, we, we could say is the larger Jerusalem metro area. It's Jerusalem and the surrounding region. Zion is going to be plowed like a field. Jerusalem, the city itself, city proper, is going to become a heap of ruins. And then we get real specific. The mountain of the temple. The temple mount. The place where the temple resides. Like the bare hills of the forest. Again, another gasp moment as the people of Israel hear these words from Micah. He has just basically spelled out the destruction of their beloved city. The city with, with an amazingly rich past. This is the city of God and it's going to be destroyed? Unsaved friend, I want to address you again for a second. What makes you think that God won't judge you? If God's going to judge His own people, how will you escape? What hope do you have of escaping His sentence? Church family, this chapter has application for us as a whole, as a church. Leaders in the church, we have a responsibility to guard against pride. Whether you're an elder or a deacon, if you're a Sunday school teacher, any leadership position, that is going to be a temptation for you to become puffed up. Beware. Because God sees and God knows. Church, this is an opportunity that reinforces what Pastor Harris has been preaching through in 1 Timothy 5. This is is speaking to the necessity of holding our leaders accountable. That if they drift from God's Word, they, they start perverting, they start turning things upside down, they start hating good and loving evil. They start making My people stray. They abhor justice and pervert all equity. Church, we need to be aware and we need to be willing to confront in those situations. Hold your leaders accountable. We segue from the Lord shall establish His house in spite of leaders to the Lord shall establish His house in the latter days. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 1-5. through Look with me, if you will, at Micah chapter 4, verses 1-5. through It would seem as we come to chapter 4 that chapter 3 throws into doubt that the Lord's house is going to be established. 
I mean, at the end of chapter 2, we saw several months ago this promise that God's going to be a king, that He's going to shepherd His people. And chapter 3 seems to throw that out the window because Zion's like a field, Jerusalem is a heap of ruins, and the temple is a barren forest. But in fact, chapter 4 begins with a salvation oracle. God will not abandon His people forever. In fact, He will use Judah to accomplish His eternal purposes. Let's look at these five verses together. Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. As I read those five verses, they should have sounded vaguely familiar to you. Because Isaiah 2, 1-9, through the passage that Sean read for us this morning, is very much parallel in content to what Micah is saying here in chapters 4 and 5. The journey of Zion and Jerusalem has come full circle in these five verses in chapter 4. These five verses are the pinnacle of this section. The pinnacle of Micah's oracle. Chapter 3 is the bad news. Brothers and sisters, chapter 4, verses 1-5 to is the good news. Zion and Jerusalem were once the places built with bloodshed and iniquity. They're the places that are going to be destroyed. But now, they are the places that will be established forever. The most striking thing about these five verses is the stark contrast they present to what Micah described in chapter 3. Here in these verses, we see things established versus things being destroyed. We see justice in chapter 4 verses 1 to 5 as opposed to injustice in chapter 3. We see peace in these verses. There's war in chapter 3. We see nations coming to follow God in chapter 4 as opposed to nations coming to conquer the people of God in chapter 3. There's a major contrast. There's a total reversal of the injustices in chapter 3. Jerusalem goes from being infamous for corruption and injustice to being famous because of the one who rules there. Everybody wants to come to Jerusalem because they want to be taught by God. The mountain of the Lord is established and exalted above anything else. And we read, in that day, the mountain will be established. In that day, mountains were thought of as dwelling places for deity. And so here what Micah is doing is he's using this image of a mountain to point out the fact and to point to the reality that God is not just one of many. He stands alone. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains. It doesn't stand in in peer to the mountains. It's above the mountains. It rests on the mountains. It, It makes the other mountains really not look like mountains. 
The hills in Pennsylvania look nothing like the Rockies in Colorado. And that's the image here. That, yeah, there's mountains around us, mountains. But go out to the Rockies. Or go to the Andes. Or go to another famous mountain range around the world. Our mountains don't really look like mountains when you compare them to real mountains. Why are the people of the nations coming to the mountain? Did you notice how they come to the mountain? Verse 1, the peoples shall flow to it. Now, I am not an engineer, so I don't know like how things typically flow, but there's this amazing thing called gravity, right? Which helps us understand that things tend to flow down. But wait a minute. In verse 1, what direction are the people flowing? Up. Some pretty remarkable engineering going on here. No, this isn't necessarily engineering. What this is pointing to is just how much everything has been put back the way it's supposed to be. Everything was so backwards in chapter 3 that this backwardsness of people flowing up to the mountain is actually how things are supposed to be. Rather than flowing down, people are going to flow up to it. So why are they coming? They're coming to learn the Lord's ways and to walk in His paths. These ways are ways of righteousness and peace. Out of Zion the law goes forth. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. These are ways of truth and certainty. The peace and satisfaction in verses 3-4 through are striking. Did you notice this? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war anymore. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid. The contrast is completed in verse 5. There's a contrast here. All people walk each in the name of his God. As as Micah looks out, everybody in the nations follows their own God. This is almost like an echo back to the end of Judges where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. But, Micah's encouragement and exhortation to the people that he's addressing, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Against the polytheism of the world, Micah calls for God's people to walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. Unsaved friend, God doesn't just offer judgment. He offers hope. He offers hope for those who will turn to Him and repent of their sins. Do you want to be pardoned from your sin by God? He's the judge. He has the power and authority to do that. Do you you want that pardon from God? These verses look past the immediate time of Micah and the people of Judah. It it is as if we were to take an onion and peel off the top layer of the onion. 
What's underneath the top layer of the onion? Another layer, right? You take that layer off and you get another layer of the onion. And another layer of the onion. And an infinite layer of onion layers until you finally get to the middle. And by then you're in tears. There's a thickness to what these verses are saying. These verses look forward to a time that Micah and the people of Israel have not experienced yet. Micah is going to spend the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 unpacking the significance of what he has just said in these five verses. We might ask ourselves, though, in verse 1, what exactly does Micah mean by in the latter days? It's important for us to remember that Micah is living pre-Christ. According to 1 Peter chapter 1, he is prophesying things that he can't fully comprehend of their fulfillment. He's saying things that God is inspiring him to say, but he can't imagine what exactly those things are going to look like. They're fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. In a sense, the coming of the Messiah and his ministry to the nations fulfills this prophecy. People flow to Jesus. But not quite. The prominence of the church as the outpost of heaven fulfills this to a certain degree. We are a light to the nations. We're going to live among the nations as we'll see in in the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5. The nations are going to flow to God. They're going to want to learn His ways. But again, not, this isn't a, it's not a, a, a right fit. While we live in the latter days, we know that Micah is looking ahead to a time still to come. We have not experienced this yet. It is a time when the kingdom of God will be established forever. We believe that time to be the millennial reign of God that we see in Revelation 20 before the final judgment. That God, when He comes and when He reigns on this earth, Micah Micah 4, 1-5 will be fulfilled. There's no doubt in the text that the Lord's house will be established. Did you pick up on the certainty of the language that is used in these five verses? In verse 1, shall is used four times. Verse 2, shall is used three times. In verse 3, shall is used four times. In verse 4, shall is used twice. These are things that will happen. These are not dreams. These are not, boy, I sure hope so's. These are not, it would sure be nice if's. These are certain realities. It explicitly directs our attention to the God of the future and the certainty with which He will accomplish His will. So what is left for the people of Israel to do? Verse 5. Verse 5 is their marching orders. Trust and follow the Lord forever. And that ought to be our response to these verses. Our first instinct when we come to a passage of prophecy like this about the future ought not to be to try and analyze it to death, but to allow that prophecy to stir us up to follow God with all of our heart and our soul and our strength. That's the purpose of the prophecy here. The purpose of the prophecy is so that the people of Israel will return to God and follow God forever and ever. Well, that brings us to our third point. The Lord's house 
will be established in spite of corrupt leaders. The Lord's house will be established in the latter days. And third and finally, the Lord's house shall be established in the power of God. The Lord's house shall be established in the power of God. And we see that in chapter in the remainders of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. In these remaining words in chapters 4 and 5, Micah intensifies the prophecy that we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. There are four sections that we see. And he arranges them in such a way to heighten our understanding of what's taking place in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. So, I want you to follow along. We're going to look at the first oracle and then the last oracle because they bookend the two middle pieces. There are four oracles. So, first and the last are serving as bookends for the middle two. So, let's look at verses 6 and 7. And we're going to see that in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Micah is looking ahead to the future. There's going to be a connection between 4, 6, and 7 and and our last section. Let's read these. In chapter 4, verse 6, it reads, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Do you notice how Micah began in verse 6? He said, in that day. These verses point to the restorative nature of how God cares for His people. And though God has judged His people, and judgment is coming on His people, He promises that He will take what is weak and injured and assemble it into a strong nation. The Lord will reign over this nation of remnants. Of, this, of these leftovers in Mount Zion forever. This points us back to those first two verses of chapter 4. God will restore His people. But these are people that are not noteworthy. They're, they're lame. They're outcast. They're afflicted. And God in His power takes them and makes them a strong nation and reigns over them. I want you to flip ahead to Micah chapter 5 and look with me at verses 10 to 15. Micah 5, 10 to 15 is the fourth section of this passage. It's the last one. And I want you to note how verse 10 begins. It begins, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord. So there's a connection between 4, 6, and 7, and 5, 10 to 15. Let's continue reading. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wood from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities." And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. These verses speak of a time when the things that the people of God trust in will be destroyed. The theme of destruction is prominent in these verses. Did you see all of the instances where God says He will cut off or throw down or destroy or pluck? This 
harkens back to what we read this morning in Isaiah 2, verses 7-8. through 8. These are things that, that Micah identifies, that Isaiah picks up on in Isaiah 2 and says, these are things the people of Israel are trusting in. They're worshiping and they're serving. And so what is God going to do? He would not be a loving God to allow them to continue in their idolatry. So He's going to destroy them. He's going to cut off those things. So what will they be left with? God. That they may trust in Him and that they may follow Him. But then we turn to verse 15. Verse 15 portrays God in a way that might make some of us uneasy. He says, I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Vengeance, anger, and fury are three words that we don't like to associate with God. We like to view God as nice, gentle, We have a domesticated version of God in which He is tame. But this verse corrects that notion. God is not a pet. God justly exercises His vengeance in wrath and anger because the nations have not acknowledged His sovereignty over them. God is the ruler of the world. There is no second to Him. He stands alone. I like the way another translation puts this verse. It says, In anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. That's the thrust here. It's not that they haven't heard. It's not that they haven't heard and it's like resonated with them and like gotten through to them and like, okay, I need to act on this. It's gone in one ear and out the other. God is just to do what He does to His people in the nations. His people shouldn't rely on anything other than their King. If God is their King, they should rely on Him. If God is the King over all, then the other nations should submit to Him. So if, if chapter 4, verses 6-7 to and chapter 5, verses 10-15 to are speaking to a future reality when we will see these things fulfilled, How do we get from now to then? Or think specifically in Micah's time as he's speaking these things to the people. How do they get from their time of pending judgment and uh, Micah, you've just said Jerusalem is going to be torn down and abolished and crushed. How do we get from that to all of this peace language and you ruling over us? And that's where we have these two middle sections of chapters 4 and 5. Let me direct you to go back to chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8 is going to begin with a statement of promise. Verse 8 reads, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. It's good news. It's great. Things are looking up. There is congruence between what has been said in 4, 1 to 5 in verse 8. But then we get to verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. 
Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. Okay, that's not such great news. We've gone from, I'm going to establish your kingdom, but there's going to be some pain and turmoil and travail, like a woman going through birth pains. But verse 10 doesn't end with, to Babylon you shall go. Because what happens in Babylon? Look at the rest of verse 10. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Ah, so between now and when Christ is going to rule and reign, we're going to be on a little bit of a roller coaster ride and it's going to be kind of painful and there's going to be some chaos and things are going to be up and down because we're going to be exiled. But it's only through being exiled that God is able to deliver and redeem His people. The people of Israel have no counselor or king. How can they have a kingdom without a ruler? Even worse they end up being exiled and going to Babylon. This seems pretty hopeless and counterproductive, doesn't it? I mean, how, how can you establish a kingdom by sending your people into exile in another kingdom? That's what God does. Because He will not abandon His people. He doesn't send His people off and then abandon them. No, there in Babylon, God will deliver and redeem His people from the hand of their enemies. As this fragile, rescued nation of remnants, what's going to happen to them then in verse 11? Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. They're licking their chops because they're saying, hey, you know what? That is easy pickings. Zion just got... They're a bunch of remnants. They're so weak. Surely we can take them. But look at verse 12. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand His counsel. For He will gather them, the the nations. He will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So God will strengthen and redeem His people. And Micah here does something. Rather than pointing to the people's circumstances and and having them feel sorry for themselves, he points them to who God is and what He's going to do to rescue and redeem them. He will defeat and destroy those who are seeking to defeat and destroy His people. But before He does that, Israel must learn to follow God alone and the pending captivity comes back up at the very beginning of chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. That's God. God, through empowering the nations to come and exile the people of Israel, they the nations, will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. They're going to send the people of Israel reeling. 
They're going to go back and they're going to be wondering to themselves, what in the world's going to happen next? How is God going to redeem the situation? And it'll be at that time where He will redeem them and bring them back. So look with me then at the, at the next section that comes in verses 2-9 through nine in chapter 5. There's a shift from addressing the tower of the flock in chapter 4, verse 8 to Bethlehem in chapter 5, verse 2. And that's the connection between these two middle sections. Chapter 4, verse 8 to 5, verse 1 is, is connected to chapter 5, verses 2 through 9 by these two addresses. You, O tower of the flock, now in chapter 5, verse 2, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. See the, see the connection again? In the, in, the, in the last section we saw this connection of labor pains. And here again it shows up in chapter 5. Verse 3 continues, Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. These verses provide hope. They look forward to the time that out of Bethlehem will come a figure like David. He's going to be a king. He's going to come from the same hometown that David came from. A king who will be ruler in Israel. But this time, this Davidic figure isn't going to die. He's going to reign forever. His rule is an everlasting rule. The Lord will give His people up, as we saw in in the last section. But only until the new ruler is born. We see that in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. So we see there that Bethlehem is going to give birth to this eternal ruler. Verses 2-5 through are explicitly referring to the Messiah. And we know this because in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come and are seeking the star, and they ask Herod, hey, do you know what's going to happen and and what's what's going on with this? Herod asks the religious leaders, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they quote Micah 5-2. The religious leaders understand that what is pictured in chapter 5, verses 2-5 through is the Messiah. These verses note how the remnant of the brethren will be returned to the children of Israel. 
And we come to verse 4, and we see this amazing picture of how this Messiah will rule. He shall stand, that's a, a symbol of power, and feed his flock. He shall rule and shepherd. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. But he's also our shepherd. And here he stands and rules, but he feeds. But notice how he does these things. He does them in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The result of his rule is that the Messiah's subjects abide. You see that in in verse 4? They shall abide. That means they'll, they'll have peace. There won't be any conflict. There won't be any war. There won't be anything that they need. God will be enough for them. He even says that there in verse 5. This one shall be peace. We find this idea of peace built out throughout the Bible where God's people are kept in perfect peace when they trust in Him. Isaiah 26.3 The angels, when they come and announce the Messiah to the shepherds, announce peace on earth, goodwill towards men in Luke 2.14. And Paul goes so far as to say that Christ Himself is our peace because He has torn down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and between us and God in Ephesians 2.14. This one shall be peace. So verses 5-9 through then wrap up this section with a prophecy On the one hand, God did deliver His people from exile from Babylon. But on the other hand, we are still waiting for that final deliverance. Christ is ruling as the great shepherd king. But to another degree, we're still awaiting the final reality of verses 5-9 through when Christ returns, when He sets up His kingdom during the millennial reign. The realities in these verses are total and they are all because of God's mighty power. The final result of this is that God's people are victorious. The Lord's house remains established and the other nations are totally defeated. Chapter 4, verses 6 through the end of chapter 5 take us back to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. They take us back to the beginning of chapter 4. Because as we consider God's amazing promise of hope to His people for the future, we've seen that Israel doesn't deserve any of what God's going to give them. They're a bunch of messed up people. They've got systemic issues. They're corrupt to the core. But God graciously and sovereignly will deliver a remnant of His people. And He's going to shepherd them. This ought to humble us as we remember that God is gracious not just with them, but with us as well. On the other hand, we see the total destruction that will come as God establishes His house. Anything that hinders the people of God from trusting in God is stripped away. Anyone who would threaten the people of God are destroyed, and God alone is left standing as the undisputed ruler and king of everything. So, what do Micah 3 through 5 have to do with us this week? How do these prophecies and promises, how do these predictions of judgment and hope 
how do they affect our lives? Having a robust understanding of sin, that it's more pervasive than we think, it's more offensive to God than we know, and it's so blatant. None of the things in chapter 3 that God indicts the people for are accidental oopsies. They're calculated things that God has told them what to do, and they've explicitly, blatantly, rebelliously turned their back on God. We need to understand that about sin. Having a robust understanding of sin is important for us as Christians. Because the issue in chapter 3, and as we saw even in Isaiah 2 this morning, is that the people of God, specifically the leaders, didn't view their sin as a big deal or even as something that would hinder their walk with God or even with something that they thought would bring about physical consequences. Did they really think that God was going to destroy the city over what they were doing? Apparently not, because they were doing it. This is important for us to get, brothers and sisters. So if you struggle with pride, your sinfulness ought to humble you and help you realize how much you need Christ. You see the injustice and you see the corruption in chapter 3, but you don't have much room to stand on a pedestal and say, I'm so much better than them. You need Christ and you need the hope that He offers just as much as the people of Israel did in chapter 3. Mom and Dad, how does your understanding of sin inform what you do after you lose your temper with your kids? When you're struggling with a situation that they're going through, how does your theology, your understanding of sin help you? How does it humble you? How does it point you to Christ? Church, we shouldn't be shocked when we sin and there are physical consequences and repercussions from that sin. Whether it's a physical illness, whether it's brokenness, whether it's a fractured relationship that takes place, sin is messy. Sin causes physical consequences. And having a robust understanding of sin helps us to not be shocked when we sin and, oh, how did this come about? Secondly, having a deep understanding of God's sovereignty provides hope in the times of despair and pain that accompany life. Do we know anything about despair and pain that accompany life? Do we know anything about heartbreak and hardship? Did you catch how everything that happened in these chapters didn't phase God at all? He wasn't scurrying around behind the scenes trying to come up with a plan B because the corruption of his people in chapter 3 had totally thrown his plans all to the wind. His sovereign plan was never in danger of failing. You might be sweating it out, but God never sweats anything out. Church, this is good news for us. This is good news for us in two ways. This means that even when you sin, you never possess the ability to damage God's plan for your life. The besetting sin that you constantly deal with, whether that's lust, greed, anger, pride, apathy, worry, or gossip, will not thwart God's plan for your life. However, His plan for your life is for you to war against that sin. Don't use the grace of God as a crutch to continue in sin. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, no. 
use the grace of God as the power and means to wage war on that sin. The second way that having a deep understanding of God's sovereignty is good news for us is it means that we can trust God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 encourage us to this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. This means that you can trust God with your relationship status. If you're currently unmarried or if maybe you're frustrated and you're thinking to yourself, is it really worth it? Is this really going to make it? Mothers, this means you can trust God with your little one's future development and growth. Teens, this means you don't need to worry about what am I going to be when I grow up? Trust God and obey what He has told you to do today and He will lead you where you ought to go. Many of you older saints have kids or grandkids that you want to follow Christ in more meaningful ways. Trust that to God. He's sovereign. Let the amount of time that you pray to Him about those concerns be greater than the time that you worry about those concerns. Look to Christ. Have a hope in Christ that drives you to holiness. Unsaved friend, I want to I circle back to you for a minute. I talked this morning about, at the beginning about the hope that Jesus offers. And we've seen how the Lord offers to deliver and redeem His people. Do you want the hope that He offers? As, as we've studied the Word this morning and looked over these three chapters, have you gone from being skeptical about Christ's hope to curious about God's hope? Let me encourage you to talk with me after the service. As a fellow sinner, I would love to be able to share with you the hope that you can have in Jesus Christ. This passage points us to the hope and to the power of God. The Lord's house will be established. And beloved, since the Lord's house will be established, let us walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time that we have been able to gaze into Your Word. I pray that You would implant the truth of it deep within us. That as we consider the chaos in, around us in our world, that we would look to the sureness of Your plans for us and for the future. Thank You that what You have said You will do. Give us faith to trust You. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.